Run the year, 520, Christian philosopher and theologian Boethius sent a book to his mentor, Symmachus, asking him to review it and, and see whether the seeds of thought planted in his mind by the writings of Augustine had borne fruit. Question for today is whether the conceptual seeds of Augustine, who was an ardent and lifelong pursuant of wisdom, might bear fruit in dealing with a contemporary eminent uh, thinker who has so confidently declared philosophy to be dead. Professor Kevin, uh, John Cavadini is exceptionally suited for this task as a scholar of patristics in the early Middle Ages. His work deals with the history of Christology and of exegesis, the theology of miracles and the work of Gregory the Great. Dr. Cavadini has also distinguished himself in work on Augustine and Augustinian streams of thought including co-editing the monumental Augustine Through the Ages Encyclopedia. The chairman of the University of Notre Dame's theology department for over 10 years, his more recent work deals with the questions of pedagogy and catechetical theology. Today's lecture is entitled, The Grand Design, an Augustinian Reply to Stephen Hawking. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor John Cavadini. Friends, although this is styled as a response to Stephen Hawking, I kind of hope that even if you don't think it works as a response to Stephen Hawking, it sort of does work as a meditation on an Augustinian theology of wonder, which we could think even about as an anatomy of wonder, since we're all into anatomies these days. I'd, um, anatomy of criticism, for example. And in case you haven't read read the book, uh, you may even know that, even if you haven't read it, that it, it famously begins by asking a series of rhetorical questions, somewhat like Augustine does. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. So the book begins with that kind of defiant uh, proclamation. And it's there that I also begin. If someone sees beauty excellently represented in a face and is carried to that higher world? Will anyone be so sluggish in mind and so immovable that when he sees all the beauties of the world of sense, all its good proportion and the mighty excellence of its order and the splendor of form which the stars for all their remoteness make manifest, Will he not be seized with reverence and think, what wonders and from what source? If he does not, he neither understands the world of sense nor sees that higher world. Sounds a little like Augustine, but it isn't. Thus does the philosopher Plotinus, arguing against the contemptuous attitude of the Gnostic Christians towards the visible world, speak instead of its wonder. He mentions, too, the reverence which seizes the one looking upon these wonders if they are properly perceived. Perhaps the philosophical life is the cultivation of the reverence that is commensurate with a sense of wonder. And perhaps philosophy itself ultimately offers, if it is not too fearsome a conceit to put it this way, an anatomy of wonder, a guide to the proper way of looking at the world. For it seems that for Plotinus, without the sense of the wonder of the visible world and the attitude of reverence that is the appropriate response, one does not really understand or perhaps even truly see this world, let alone any higher intelligibility which arises from the wonder and does not displace or dissipate it. However, according to Professor Hawking in his recent book, The Grand Design, philosophy is dead. 
And with its demise, wonder seems to have been a collateral casualty. Commenting at length on, quote, the extremely impressive fine-tuning coincidence, end quote, the quote again, miracle of fine-tuning. Here the word miracle used loosely to mean something impressively wonderful, which in his second to last chapter he has built up into the most wonderful phenomenon described in the whole book, which surely must argue for some higher grand design. He finally notes that design is not the answer of modern science, but rather the answer is the theory of multiple universes, the multiverse idea, which means, quote, that our cosmic habitat, now the entire observable universe, is only one of many, just as our solar system is one of many. That means that in the same way that the environmental coincidences of our solar system were rendered unremarkable by the realization that billions of such systems exist, the fine tunings in the laws of nature can be explained by the existence of multiple universes." End quote. I take unremarkable, just in that quote, in the same way that the environmental coincidences of our solar system were rendered unremarkable, I take unremarkable to be a word indicating the opposite of wonderful, such that, in other terms the author uses, this miracle of fine-tuning is only an apparent miracle, the title of chapter 7, only an apparent wonder. Just as, quote, it is a small step from the realization that the Earth is just another planet to the idea that our sun is nothing special either, end quote. So we have learned that even our whole universe, with all its apparently miraculous fine-tuning, is nothing special either. Nor is there any need for reverence, for God is a hypothesis of first causality that is no longer needed. And he quotes Laplace um, on that idea. Sire Napoleon, I have not needed that hypothesis, God. As Hawking somewhat irreverently points out, quote, spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going, end quote. A particular casualty of the draining of wonder from the visible universe is something that is presumably in the higher world of Plotinus, to which reverence for the wonder of the sensible universe leads us, and that is free will. On his way to ruling out a priori and without physical ar philosophical argumentation the existence of free will, Hawking asks a series of rhetorical questions, quote, some people live in the universe and interact with the other objects. No, since people live in the universe and interact with the other objects in it, scientific determinism must hold for people as well. Do people have free will? If we have free will, where in the evolutionary tree did it develop? Do blue-green algae or bacteria have free will? Or is their behavior automatic and within the realm of scientific law? Is it only multi-celled organisms that have free will, or only mammals? We might think that a chimpanzee is exercising free will when it chooses to chomp on a banana, or a cat when it rips up your sofa. But what about the roundworm, called Kynerhabditus elegans, a simple creature made up of only 959 cells? It probably never thinks, quote, that was a damn tasty bacteria I got to dine on back there, end quote. Yet it too has a definite preference in food and will either settle for an unattractive meal or go foraging for something better depending on recent experience. Is that the exercise of free will? Free will is just an illusion, end quote. The informality of the language enhances the impression that the author is trying to make there is nothing special about human beings, nothing essentially more wondrous about a human being than there is about a 959-cell worm. Or to reverse it, there is nothing wondrous about the worm, whose behavior is, quote, automatic and 
within the realm of scientific law and so nothing wondrous about human beings and any other impression is only an illusion. If wonder is the beginning of the philosophical life, according to Plato and Aristotle, and if in that tradition the philosophical life is the cultivation of wonder, science seems to be the continual deflation of wonder from the world until it, along with philosophy, is dead. The world. And this goes a fortiori for those specific cases of special intervention or wonder called miracles. These are simply declared by Stephen Hawking not to exist without any further examination or philosophical regret. In Hawking's intellectual paradigm and contrary to Plotinus's, intelligibility makes something less rather than more wondrous. For Dawkins ultimately, the universe becomes less wondrous the less it is centered around us human beings and the less it corresponds to what he calls our desire to be special, the object of the care of a benevolent creator. The idea of God is not useful and unnecessary, an illusion of human narcissism disguised as scientific theory. Paradoxically, once the universe has been disenchanted of narcissistic illusion, the only thing that is left to wonder at is the theory that explains everything else. Quote, perhaps the true miracle, Hawking's dryly comments, is that abstract considerations of logic lead to a unique theory that predicts and describes a vast universe full of the amazing variety that we see, end quote. The paradox is that those abstract considerations are not disembodied, but belong to the scientist, not as human being, since most human beings are not capable of such abstractions, but as scientist. The true wonder is not the amazing variety we see, but the impressive abstract considerations of the scientists which deflate it of wonder, deflecting the wonder onto the theory. One can feel at the very end of the book the claim to cultural prestige well-earned and certainly well-deserved after making sense, such sense out of so many hitherto unexplained mysteries. Plotinus would perhaps not dismiss these claims insofar as they are useful in some way, but would not find them amusing or even interesting as claims about the meaning and source of the universe. No claim which would deflate the wonder of the perceptible world by abstracting it onto a theory could ever gain any traction with Plotinus. Abstract conceptions are, for all their abstraction, theories which deflate what is doing the thinking, soul and mind, to the level of a sensible object subject to similar laws and so, at the same time, deflate the world of soul and mind. Deflate the world of soul and mind. Remove it. Deflation of the world of wonder, displacing wonder onto an abstract theory, is then paradoxically to remain attached to the sensible and the perceptible, and to have an investment in never rising beyond them. For that would imply that the thinker, as thinker, was somehow not reducible to the theory, and the theory would then be lost. Plotinus teaches, rather, that the ultimate intelligibility of the universe is not discovered by disvesting it of its wonder, which he, which he uses the words soul and mind to describe, not by dissolving oneself as soul and mind into the perceptible by a theory that thereby disvests the world of soul and mind, but rather by letting oneself be seized by the reverence, which is a true intuition, intuition of the wonder of one's own self, first as soul and then as mind. The perceptible universe is the sensible expression, wondrously reaching even to lifeless matter, of soul and mind. So much so that one becomes aware of one's own soul and mind as such and not as physical in any way, as participating in the whole of life, the whole of soul or life, and the whole of mind or intelligibility. <clears throat> That's just the ascent of the soul. 
as a moment of increased rather than decreased being seized by reverence, one does not and cannot stop with mere intelligibility, because to see the intelligibility of all and to experience oneself as a participation in the mind of the universe is to see it as overflowing from a goodness that is not reducible either to intelligibility or mind or to soul or to life, but is beyond both. Each is the expression, that is soul and mind, each is the expression of this goodness, which precisely as good has overflowed into intelligibility, life and the visible world as its own expression. We learn about the good by study, by what Plato, Plotinus says, calls the greatest study. And it is thus that we enter into the domain of mind. We learn about the good, quote, by comparisons and negations and knowledge of the things which produced from it an intellectual progress by ascending degrees. But we advance towards it by purifications and virtues and adornings of the soul and by gaining a foothold in the world of mind and settling ourselves firmly there and feasting on its contents. Anyone who, who attains to this at once contemplates himself and everything else and is the object of his contemplation. He becomes real being and mind and the perfect living creature and does not look at it anymore from outside, i.e. from abstraction. When he becomes this, he is near. The good is next above him, close to him, already shining over the whole intelligible world." End quote. After a while, there is an end of study as a light beyond study, beyond mind, begins to be seen, something so beautiful that it swamps one's whole soul and mind with light. Quote, then letting all study go, not recommended for students, <laughs> led by his instruction to mind and firmly established in beauty, he raises his thought to that in which he is, but is carried out of it by the very surge of the wave of mind and lifted high by its swell, suddenly sees without knowing how. The sight fills his eyes with light, but does not make him see something else by it, but the light is that which he sees. There is not in it one thing which is seen and another which is its light or mind and that which it thinks, but a radiance which produces these at a later stage and lets them exist beside it. The good is a radiance which simply produces mind without extinguishing itself in the production. The radiance remains and mind comes to be by reason of the good's existence." End quote. Passing beyond this moment to a simple awareness of the good itself is a moment of ecstatic reverence, which Plotinus compares to entering the sanctuary of a temple. When one leaves the sanctuary, one sees that the statues of the gods outside the sanctuary are simply images of something much more beautiful. In other words, one comes to see the whole sensible world and one's own soul and mind as akin to statues of the divine, of the good. So, where are we in our taxonomy of wonder? Should we pause a moment to look back after such a vision in the sanctuary? This is my feeble attempts at humor, friends. <laughs> 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 they don't work that well. It's okay. Can we call philosophy back from the dead after such a thrilling spiritual vision? Or is this kind of mysticism simply a reversion to an unscientific mystification after science has already and so persuasively and prestigiously demystified it? Can philosophy fight back? Plotinus would not be too interested in fighting, perhaps. But his eye might light upon the following passage, where Hawking is discussing free will as an effective theory. In physics, Hawking explains, an effective theory is a framework created to model certain observed phenomena without describing in detail all of the underlying processes, end quote. In the case of human beings, this is necessary because, quote, while conceding that human behavior is indeed determined by the laws of nature, end quote, the complexity of the case would mean it would require a few billion years to do the equations that would accurately predict any given behavioral outcome. And that would be, quote, a bit too late to duck when the person opposite aimed a blow, end quote. However, it turns out that, quote, that effective theory is only moderately successful 
in predicting behavior because, as we all know, decisions are often not rational or are based on a defective analysis of the consequences of the choice. That is why the world is in such a mess." End quote. Plotinus might wonder how self-aware the writer of these lines might be. What is meant by rational, for instance? As subject to scientific determinism, presumably no human decision is rational in any strict sense. Does rational imply then a value judgment? Perhaps the same value judgment implied in the seemingly gratuitous judgment that the world is in a mess. What is mess relative to if all we see are the outcomes of scientific determinism being played out before our eyes? Does it imply an idea of the good that has seized the writer temporarily with reverence, even though expressed in an offhand, irreverent comment? Plotinus, having come back from the dead, would press this point <laughs> and ask that the ascent of the soul begin. Plotinus would diagnose a soul so immersed in sense and sensibilia that it has identified itself with them. Plotinus might sense the resulting passion in the sentence and Plotinus might sense the resulting passion in the sentence and implied judgmental contempt. Perhaps the world would not be in such a mess if all human beings were as rational as the writer and his cosmologist colleagues. The comment then would serve as a kind of reminder of the cultural prestige of the writer and of science in general, as if the simple layman or woman who is reading this book and who is cast as such, as layman or woman, by the popular approach the book takes, would need any reminding that the real wonder in the world is this rationality and the theories it generates. Perhaps we could locate at this point, from Plotinus's point of view, a pathology of wonder, displaced from the physical universe onto the theories of the culture, cultural elite who have explained these wonders away. Well, we've come this far in the lecture, halfway through, without even mentioning St. Augustine. Apologies. Though it is actually sometimes hard to know precisely where to draw the boundary line between Plotinus and one of his most enthusiastic admirers, St. Augustine. And perhaps we have already merged from a suspicion about how Plotinus might feel <coughs> to an assertion that would actually be more at home in St. Augustine. To talk about the cultural per se, and to think about the way in which cultural elites define themselves by seeking to displace wonder from creation onto themselves is already to be working within a, within a sphere of what we could call culture. That is, the set of sign-making and signifying behavior, including language, education, and all other representational activity of which St. Augustine proved himself to be such an acute observer. St. Augustine is suspicious of self-styled elites both secular and ecclesiastical, because an elite, as an elite, is a group that allows itself to be defined by the prestige it attracts to itself, that is, by the wonder it, it excites in others. It's not that there are not groups of people who do not excel in certain cultural venues. There are. And surely it is not wrong to excel at something. It isn't. And yet Augustine notices how hard it is for elites not to strive for excellence simply because it defines them as an elite, that is, as prestigious. And correspondingly, how hard it is for everyone else not to feel intimidated by this prestige and participate in creating it by giving the grudging or fearful wonder that intimidation always represents. In the Confessions, Augustine shows how his own education taught him not only to be a good orator, but also to seek praise, that is, prestige, through his rhetoric. He learned that the purpose of excelling in rhetoric was not necessarily to speak the truth persuasively, but to acquire prestigious appointments. Augustine's skill as an orator contributed to the prestige of the Roman emperor, who appointed him to a chair of rhetoric. And the appointment, of course, conferred prestige on him, Augustine. And yet this prestige, as Augustine analyzes it, is a kind of pathologized wonder. 
wonder which is displaced from the truth, since, as Augustine points out, no one hearing any of his speeches thought they were true, and cast onto something much less deserving of wonder so that it would be wondered at instead of truth. After all, it is easier to become an excellent speaker or to bask in the cultural prestige of one than actually to speak the truth no matter what. In fact, someone who did that would be so truly wondrous that it might bring some well-needed perspective to bear on the imperial power of the emperor and his bureaucracy. Augustine sees in such socially enacted projects of wonder control one of the best indications of, the more, of a more fundamental or original flaw, which Augustine always called superbia, or in the somewhat lackluster English equivalent, pride. Pride in this sense is not simply joy in one's legitimate accomplishments, but rather a desire to live as though one were self-interpreting, the principle of one's own meaning, and in that sense, self-sufficient. Since the only truly self-sufficient reality is God, pride is in effect the desire to replace God and to live as though one had no need to reference anything outside of oneself or one's projects to attract one's own or anyone else's wonder. No, sorry. Pride is in effect the desire to displace God and to live as though one had no need to reference anything outside of oneself in order to be happy. This requires that there be nothing outside of oneself or one's projects to attract one's own or anyone else's wonder. For if one is reduced to a wondering awe at something outside of oneself, one has momentarily at least left the domain of pride behind for humility. Wonder is the opposite of pride. Unless there is a mechanism in place to safely displace it from wherever it might naturally lie, onto oneself or one's own, own social group. For Augustine, the most notable example of this was the Roman Empire, which taught its citizens to be zealous for the glory of Rome above any other value and at any cost. In Book 5 of the great work City of God, we see a parade of impressive and wonderful examples of human virtue, human, human virtus, or excellence. That's a better translation of virtus including figures that even after so many centuries, we too can regard as truly glorious. For example, Cincinnatus, who became dictator at a time of political crisis, steered his country through the crisis, and then retired back to his farm penniless. Who would not regard such excellence as wondrous and wish for such a statesman to appear, even now? A joke. <laughs> <laughs> and yet Augustine points out that over time, the pursuit of virtue or excellence for the purposes of acquiring glory for one's own country and in turn receiving glory back only makes virtue a slave of glory, which is a kind of opinion glory. It makes it a virtue, an excellence, not to rise above opinion. Excellence becomes simply a function of opinion that is, a function of prestige, instead of the other way around. The quest to be the sole interpreter of one's own meaning, and therefore of all meaning, takes on a political cast, as the empire is at liber liberty to define the very meaning of the human person. One is meaningful to the extent that one contributes to the glory of Rome. Even the best that human being has to offer, human being at its most heroically excellent or virtuous, is wonderful only insofar as it serves to make Rome wonderful. But in the quest to make the state glorious, it begins to fade from one's mind that there could be a reason for striving for excellence that is separate from striving from prestige. The pursuit of excellence becomes synonymous with the pursuit of prestige. I know this is not familiar on university campuses. If excellence or virtue becomes relative to prestige, which is a function of opinion, then it begins to be a virtue not to rise above opinion. In Book 5 of The City of God, Augustine depicts a society in the terminal stages of complacency, and, and in it has book five, that is, has offered his reader an analysis of social stagnation. 
It is the chauvinism of the Roman Empire which is causing its decline, not, as Augustine's critics had suggested, the rise of Christianity. It is its inability to wonder at anything other than itself that has made it so it has no place to gain perspective on itself and its subtle opinions on what is and what is not prestigious. Social stagnation is a pathology, social stagnation as a pathology in wonder is perhaps especially amplified and therefore exemplary in the case of the pagan Roman Empire because of the myth of Roma Aeterna, Rome the Eternal City, a virtual apotheosis of the social and political body. Augustine comes as close to a joke as he ever gets in his scornful, scornful parody of the pantheon of Roman gods to be found in the erudite compilation of the even then classical, that is prestigious, Roman author Varro in book four of the City of God. This is a little bit of a long quote, friends, but it is Augustine's only joke, so I thought I could <laughs> just dwell on it a little more at length. The Romans did not think it proper to entrust their land to any one god. Rather, they entrusted the countryside to Rusina, the mountain terraces to the god Eugatinus, hills to the goddess Colatina, and over the valleys they set Valonia. Nor could they even find one, one goddess, Segitia, to whom to commend the general care of cornfields. Rather, for as long as the seed corn was under the ground, they chose to have the goddess Sea set over it. Then, when it was above the ground and ripening, the goddess Segitia assumed responsibility. And when the grain was harvested and stored, the goddess Tutelina was invoked to keep it safely. Who would not have thought a single goddess, Segitia, equal to the task of watching over the corn, all the way from its grassy beginnings to the ripe ears. But this was not enough for people who loved, so loved a multitude of gods. Thus they set Proserpina over the germinating seeds, the god Nodutus over the joints and nodes of the follicles, and the goddess Volutina over the sheaths of the ears. When the sheaths opened, the goddess Patalina took charge of them. When the corn stood level in the field, the goddess Hostalina etc. I shall not list them all after he listed them all. <laughs> but this very brief account is intended to make it clear that our opponents do not have the impudence to allege that the Roman Empire was established, increased, and preserved by those divinities who were so clearly confined to their own departments, Uficiis, that no general responsibility was entrusted to any one of them. When could Sagitia have looked after Imperium, seeing that she was not allowed simultaneous charge of crops and trees? How could Nodutus help in war when his interest was confined to the note of the stalk and did not even extend to the follicle? That's Augustine's joke, end quote. <laughs> Augustine knows very well that most of these gods did not even have a cult, and that by his time, no one, neither Christian nor non-Christian, believed in any of them. And yet the passage is a parody, then, not so much of the gods themselves, as of the imperial bureaucracy, which it seems to elevate into the skies. The gods and goddesses that no one believes in are still part of the Roman cultural heritage, prestigious as such, and the failure to disown them reveals the vested interest in the imperial project as an apotheosized replacement for the divine. The countryside, the mountains and the hills are left bereft of wonder that should pertain to them as creatures of the one creator, politicized as part of the imperial delivery system of beneficia, glorious only insofar as precisely controlled to extend the glory of the empire. The countryside, the visible and sensible world, has meaning only insofar as it provides prestige and glory for the empire, that is, only insofar it has political meaning. Truly this is the apotheosis of pride, for there is no wonder outside of the state to challenge its hegemony of meaning. If you try, with Plotinus, to ascend from the wonder of the sensible world to the wonders of soul, mind, and the good, you end up ascending only to the ultimate referent of the world's wonder, displaced onto the empire. If you manage to ascend to soul or mind, you find that their very virtus or excellence refers you not to the ultimate goodness, that is the source of wonder, but to the glory of the empire. 
Philosophy itself is co-opted in spite of Plotinus, corrupted by the desire to provide prestigious sages for the state to boast about. So in other words, even God becomes an item to put on your CV. It's a handy item, friends, if you're looking for a job. In other words, if you've attained the contemplation of, well, anyway. Where are we now in our anatomy of wonder? Surely Augustine is on the side of Plotinus and on the, and on the side of the wonder of the universe as providing a true clue as it's to ultimate intelligibility as good. And yet, just as surely, we have treaded into even deeper waters when it comes to a diagnosis of the path pathologized warpings and denials of wonder. The simultaneous inflation of and displacement of the wonder of the natural universe, including human persons, onto an abstract theory that is the product of a cultural elite, serves the prestige of that elite and serves up the natural world and the human person, bereft of wonder and devoid of prestige simply as human, to a hierarchy of utility somewhere. Augustine would suspect, if not the late Roman Empire, then the market forces of late phase capitalism. Augustine is always suspicious when wonder is arbitrarily trucked around as so much spiritual cargo, fungible with prestige, and denied the human person wherever he or she may be in education or brilliance, denied to the human person wherever he or she may be in education or brilliance. From this perspective, the idea that God has been invented to support a view of the universe with the human being at the center is simply a distraction and could not be farther from the truth of true religion in which God is at, in which God is at the center, precisely as a challenge to any premature foreclosures of meaning focused on utility. In rejecting a caricature of true religion, Hawking's, from an Augustinian point of view, has distracted us from his replacement of it with an actual claim to hegemony of meaning. And in the sleight of hand, the wonder that used to belong to the cosmos and to the human person is displaced into the prestige of the scientific vanguard. From this perspective, Augustine does not believe that Plotinus can ultimately be very helpful because philosophical achievement as a form of cultural excellence is itself too easily co-opted into the imperial project of the displacement of wonder away from human persons and excellence and onto the empire. Augustine comments over and over again in his sermons and in his treatises that in the desire to claim wisdom as a prestigious accomplishment, the philosophers themselves have not proved able ultimately to resist the pursuit of excellence as a pursuit of prestige. Just as, just as virtue can become a credential for personal and, and imperial glory, so truth itself can become a similar credential. And the more one has mastered the truth, so to speak, the more, rather than the less, is attempting to vitiate it in the very process of teaching it. This is because the urge to displace wonder onto oneself that comes from imperial culture is only in the culture because it is first and foremost in every human heart, an original sin in which we are all complicit and from which we need to be saved. To illustrate this, let us go on with our anatomy of wonder by considering Augustine's view of miracles, which Stephen Hawking says don't exist. In the City of God, Augustine observes that God works miracles in order to awaken our sense of wonder, or rather, to inspire us to release ourselves from the strategies of control and management of wonder that generate prestige, and to put it back where it belongs, namely onto the world itself as the handiwork of God the Creator. Quote, we must not listen to those who say that the invisible God does not work visible, visible miracles. For even they believe that he made the world. Surely they cannot deny that the world is visible, but whatever marvelous thing is done within this world is certainly less than the whole world, that is, the heaven and the earth, and all that is in them. And these things God assuredly made. Just as he who made the world is hidden 
from human beings, however, and is incomprehensible to us, so are the means by which God made it. Although, therefore, from the wonders, the wonders of the visible order of nature are held in low regard because they are always before us, yet when we view them wisely, we see that they are greater than the least familiar and rarest of miracles. For man himself is a greater miracle than any miracle performed by man. God, then, who made the visible heaven and earth, does not disdain to perform visible miracles in heaven or on earth. He does this in order to inspire the soul, hitherto given up to things visible, to worship him, the invisible." End quote. Miracles may or may not be interruptions of natural law, though surely the most dramatic of them are. And yet Augustine does not draw attention to that feature of them, as though such interruptions prove that there was a God who is creator in the sense of first physical cause and who has overseen the creation of a cozy, uni cozy universe, meaningful because it is centered on us human beings. In fact, that is exactly the problem miracles are meant to address. Our prideful effort to render ourselves fully self-referential has ended up deadening the visible universe and our own being as an element in its wonder by displacing that wonder into the prestige of cultural achievement. Miracles are meant to jumpstart our sense of wonder at the visible universe by providing us with something that is so wondrous that it obviously relativizes and potentially demystifies the prestige associated with cultural elites. It would be difficult to routinize as a cultural accomplishment the raising of the dead, though some lesser marvels could be routinized through magic. It seems to demand a larger sense of wonder, the raising of the dead. It seems to want us to recover a sense of wonder for our own being that is different from any prestige which may attach to our achieved excellence. In fact, any particular miracle, if authentic, will always carry with it some guidance so that we can begin to see the true dimensions of wonder that it is meant to inspire. Here's a sermon preached about 417 on a text from the Gospel of John. Quote, could anything be more difficult to comprehend than that a human being who was not should come to be? That one who was not should, by being born, appear in the light of day? Could anything be as wonderful as that, as difficult to comprehend, but for God as easy to do? Marvel at such things. Sit up and take notice. Augustine continues by commenting on the wonder that, by contrast, is elicited by a miracle. Quote, People were amazed at the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, giving so many thousands their fill on five loaves. And they are not amazed at the lands being filled with crops from a few grains. End quote. We have seen why. The lands filled with crops have lost their reference to the Creator because they are seen merely as an extension of the wonder of the imperial economy and are valued for their utility. Quote, people see extraordinary things and are amazed. Where do the people themselves come from to be amazed? You marvel at other things while you, the marveler, are yourself an amazing miracle, end quote. Wonder excites questions, it does not suppress them. It disturbs the deadening complacency that accepts cultural prestige as an unquestioned value. Quote, but, as I was saying, all these things had grown cheap in your eyes, lost their glamour. And so he came himself to do extraordinary things in order to help you recognize the hand of your maker in these ordinary things as well. The one came who, asked, make, who was asked, make wonderful your mercies, Psalm 17.7. He was being generous with them, his mercies, you see. He was being generous in creation, and nobody was astonished or saw the wonder of it. So he came as a little one to little ones. He came as a doctor to the sick." End quote. The miracles accomplished by the incarnate word, the incar incarnate rationale, logos or verbum, means in this case the rationale for the whole universe. The miracles accomplished by the incarnate rationale are all wonderful signs of himself as the greatest wonder. He is the most prestigious person in the universe. After all, God himself. And yet he came as a little one to little ones. 
The miracle of creation is a miracle of generosity and compassion or mercy, and yet we were looking past such generosity for something more prestigious. The miracles catch our attention. We are always looking for some impressive accomplishment, but they direct our attention to a wonder that places into perspective all of the excellence that we customarily endow with prestige. Quote, after all, which is the more incredible? It's easier to believe that human beings receive life from God, that God receives death from human beings, I think is much more incredible. It is incredible that Christ multiplied the loaves and fishes, but the wonder, impressive as it is to us who are looking for prestigious accomplishments, and wish we could put that on our CV, serves only to deflate the pride that was looking for them by inspiring us to wonder at something that can never be co-opted by the quest for prestige, the shedding of the blood of the incarnate word. The wonder that this elicits is the healing of pride. It causes us to see our own being as wonderful, not in the first instance for anything it has accomplished or can accomplish, but because it is the object of such prodigal love. Our wonder at the self-emptying love of the Lord is wonder at the same time at the word, the logos, the rationale for the whole universe, the mind of the maker, and the very maker himself. The universe is invested in wonder because its intelligibility comes from this love, and this love exceeds our ability to explain it, as it is completely and absolutely as divine love, free. The universe is released from its slavery to our quest for prestige. And in its freedom, its true wonder is also released, recovered from the unremarkability to which political, cultural, or scientific complacency had assigned it. We are free to be formed in the love which alone makes us truly objective observers of the world. The order of creation as it came from the hand of God, then, is not an order of unfreedom or shackling, but an order of freedom that has as its origin the absolutely mysterious freedom of God who creates not out of necessity or through any non-divine intermediary, but in his word co-equal to himself. This is the same extraordinary and unimaginable freedom we see in the choice of the word to empty himself and become himself a sacrifice. In true worship, we see the world from the perspective of this freedom unconstrained and acting only out of goodness. Augustine pictures us asking of any created reality, who made it? By what means did he make it? And why did he make it? With the answer in the city of God, it is the father of the word who said, let it be. And that which was made when he spoke was beyond doubt made by means of the word. Again, when it is said, God saw that it was good, it is thereby sufficiently signified that God made what he made not from any necessity, not because he had any need of any benefit, but simply from his own goodness, that is, so that it might be good. And if this goodness is rightly understood to be the Holy Spirit, then the whole Trinity is revealed to us in the works of God. End quote. We see the world, the whole world, including physical reality, marked by the sign of this mysterious freedom beyond which one cannot find a cause or rationale. He says, as we run over all the works which he has established in a wonderful stability, let us consider his vestigia, his footprints, as it were, more deeply impressed in one place, more lightly in another, but distinct even in those things which are below us." End quote. Even physical inanimate reality bears the footprints of its creation in freedom and for freedom, for in their measure, number, and weight, there is something that is truly itself and not something else, truly something, and in its weight, a kind of love that is a complete self-expression for this kind of thing. Though not an image of God, it is still marked by the big bang of its origin and the loving freedom of the Trinity. Here's a passage. What, again from the city of God, what, do not even all the irrational animals like worms, to whom the power of thought is not given, from immense dragons down to the smallest worms, all show that they desire to exist, and therefore avoid death by every movement they can make? What? 
Do not the very trees and bushes, even though they cannot avoid destruction by means of perceptible movements, all seek to preserve their existence in their own fashion by putting down their roots into the earth so that they may draw nourishment from it and put forth healthy branches into the air? Finally, even those corporeal objects, so this is like doing Stephen Hawking's like two notches better, never mind worms, but even incorporeal objects. Even those incorporeal, even those corporeal objects, which have neither sensation nor any seed of life, nonetheless either spring upwards or sink downwards or are balanced in the middle so that they may preserve their existence in that place where they are most able to exist according to their nature, end quote. The attitude of wonder that corresponds to the doctrine of creation is one that sees even in worms, is one that sees even in worms and inanimate objects, the footprints or vestigia of the Trinity. Awareness of these footprints or vestigia of the Trinity in the world, which becomes an awareness of something even greater in the case of human beings, not just, vestig not just a footprint, but an image of the Trinity. As image, we are a created version of the freedom that is the Trinitarian life of God. And yet we are not God. We cannot be the sources of our own meaning. Ultimately, we are, one could say, a needy freedom, one that cannot be truly free apart from our dependence upon God and our configuration to that of which we are the image. In a way, to see the world, including ourselves, as bearing the footprints of the Trinity is awareness of a world that is truly itself, truly free to be itself and nothing else, and yet at the same time, having such freedom, not as God, but as a trace or an image. Awareness of the vestigia of the Trinity is awareness of a world whose very wonder bespeaks its origin in the love of God, and thus also its dependence on that love. Awareness of the wonder of the world as vestigia of the Trinity is awareness of a needy world. And so awareness of oneself as wonderful image is awareness of oneself as food for that needy world. Experience of one's freedom, one's primary awareness of the Trinity, is in the experience of oneself as food. Therefore, the proper attitude that corresponds to the Christian doctrine of creation is not in the first instance to try to prove it or to disprove that we have free will as though we could do either one persuasively, try to prove or to disprove that we have free will. It is rather to experience ourselves as more and more configured to the bread of angels, not by trying to work miracles, but by our configuration to the greater wonder that the miracles always signify, the fact that the word or rationale of all creation became and still is food for us. Quote, let us turn back to the one who performed these miracles, he is himself the bread which came down from heaven, but bread which nourishes and never diminishes, bread which can be eaten but cannot be eaten up. Who can the bread of heaven be but Christ? But for man to eat the bread of angels, the Lord of angels became man. Because if he hadn't become this, we would not have his flesh. If we didn't have his flesh, we would not eat the bread of the altar." End quote. Augustine loves to talk about the wonder of this love as the wonder of a heavenly deal that God strikes with us in Christ, a heavenly economy, if we can put it that way, in which God seemingly irrationally receives nothing from us except our liabilities and pays for those liabilities with the most expensive commodity in the universe, his own blood. Quote, sift through all human affairs, Convict me of lying if you can. Consider all human beings and ask yourself whether they are in this world for any other end but to be born, to toil, and to die. These are the trade goods of this region of ours. These are found here in abundance. It was to such trade that the trader came down. And because every trader both gives and receives, gives what he has, receives what he hasn't got, when he buys something, gives money and receives what he buys. So Christ, too, in this piece of trading, both gave and received. What did he receive? What there's plenty of here, being born, toiling, and dying. Please, good trader, buy us. What am I saying, buy us, when we ought to be giving thanks because you already have bought us? You distribute our price to us. We drink your blood. You indeed distribute our price to us, end quote. 
looking for prestige, for something wondrous, and wanting to receive that prestige, we find ourselves mysteriously trapped, beguiled, perhaps attracted by the miracles as a break in natural law, but passing on to the greater marvel that this represents. And in wondering at that, we suddenly find ourselves in awe, gawking foolishly and most unprestigiously at the essence of the whole universe and wanting, in spite of ourselves almost, and most unprestigiously and foolishly, to run after it, to buy the pearl of great price, or rather to receive its price as our own. The blood of the creator of the universe spilled to buy death back from us and give us a life that is beyond the useless and obsessive quest for glory, honor, and prestige. Receiving the Eucharist, we are incorporated, literally, into the heavenly economy and find our freedom as a configuration to that free economy of love, as ourselves food or bread for the world. We experience the wonder of the world primarily in configuration to its price. How do we cultivate this attitude of wonder? Augustine's answer is consistent throughout the corpus of his sermons by what we could call Eucharistic giving. Just as the stranger was recognized on the road to Emmaus in the breaking of the bread, so a Eucharistic giving would involve recognition of the stranger by the works of hospitality. The works of hospitality, not in the first instance a theory, recover the stranger from the status of a predetermined, unfree outcropping of the impersonal forces of the universe to something precious, loved, valued, and wondrous. Eucharistic giving involves remembering that in the heavenly economy, there was no counting of the cost, no strict justice, but an extravagance beyond justice, such that the very meaning of the word justice is widened beyond calculations of equity. Instead of assuming, for example, that the world is unjust and that God's action or inaction in any particular case indicts him of injustice, Augustine advises, before we go into that, consider whether there is any unpaid debt of justice in your own account. Break your bread for the hungry and take the person with no shelter into your home. If you see anyone naked, clothe him, quoting Isaiah 58. This is what justice means for you. For this is the commandment the Lord God has entrusted to you. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, get rid of the wickedness of your hearts and take it out of my sight. Learn to do good, deal justly with the orphan and the widow. Then come and let us argue it out, says the Lord. One who has been foolish enough to go beyond what might be considered safe and therefore even prestigious in almsgiving, one who is given without regard to merit but only to need, and who has given so much as to feel foolish, such a one is experiencing his or her freedom, not by trying to observe it as a neutral phenomenon in the universe, but by paying the price for it in love. That price is the freedom itself. The orphan and the widow are worth just as much as the prestigious chaired professor of cosmology, or theology, or philosophy, and just as wondrous. It turns out, after all, that wonder really does have an anatomy. It is the anatomy of the body of Christ, formed by an economy of love that is a new way of doing business in the world, a new way of assessing worth, and so a new way of assessing wonder. We can look out on the world in all the complexity and variety that science has shown us and see in it a reflection of the price God has paid for it. For that is what creation is, something so precious to God that he considered his own whole self, his own infinite and eternal self, a small price to pay. Negligible, really. Creation bears the traces of this love everywhere and always, and we will see these traces, delineations of glory and wonder, to the extent that we too are configured to this price and so bring into the world an image by which people may see what the Creator is like. Isn't this, the Pope of Pope, isn't this the point of Pope Benedict's idea, that the saints are lights, that their lives cause light to enter into the world? It is in the lives of the saints, he suggests, following Augustine, I think, that we are able to see faint echoes of the true Big Bang that is creation, such that the Big Bang of scientific theory is only an analogy, a trace, 
real, though only as a pointer to the ultimate genesis of the cosmos and the wonder of God's love. Thank you.